Hey everyone, it's Taylor. Throughout this season, you've heard little teasers of certain content that our office is working on, like the new Texas Tech website, our magazine Evermore, and a video series we're proud to call Foundations. The idea of Foundations is simple. We wanted to connect researchers across campus to sit around a table and talk about important issues that impact our world. It lives on our YouTube channel and we're sharing it with you here too. This episode is about water. Specifically, what happens if we run out of it and what researchers on our campus are trying to do about it. There's an atmospheric scientist, a professor of water law, a farmer, a professor of wildlife management, and the director of the Davis College Water Center. We are inspiring conversations. This is Foundations. Tech is in such a unique place. I mean, we're living in our own laboratory. We hear the people we want to understand. How can we make their life and our life better? Because we all live here. It's a place we call home, but life in West Texas isn't always easy. There are challenges we know we need to face. We're bringing together people from different places to have a conversation about an issue that impacts all of us. We're inspiring conversations. This is Foundations. So primarily, if you look at where we are a couple of decades ago, we had a lot of this area where you would have sufficient amount of water in the Ogallala Aquifer to continue irrigated agriculture. So over time, what has happened is we've been drawing a lot more water out of the Ogallala Aquifer. And if you look at another decade or so down the road, you are seeing a large proportion of that area being drawn down so much that it might not be able to support the irrigated agriculture going forward. So I think it's time for us to try and look for different opportunities for working with producers, using now some of the new technology that is coming on board to try and help our producers to be in a position where they can manage their water in a most efficient manner, just so that it's not that farming stops with this generation or the subsequent generation, but then farming goes on for many generations into the future. There's a whole suite of technology in terms of tools that are being coming out from the industry perspective. Um, these tools actually allows the producers to see how much they're actually putting on their crops and how much of water they have so they can manage really well. But the one thing that's happening is the technology is moving so fast mm -hmm that the producers are really finding hard to catch up with the technology. And that's where the TTU's Texas Alliance for Water Conservation actually comes into play, where we are an unbiased entity, where we work with the producers and the industry, try and identify which is the right technology for the producers to use for on a farm-by-farm -farm basis. Uh, so there's a lot of learning there, but then the technology is coming up where if you use it really wisely, we should be able to extend the lifespan of the Ogallala Aquifer going forward. Also, without considering technology, conservation of playa wetlands on the Southern High Plain is um, important moving forward in the future because um, isolated waters in the United States are not protected. And playa wetlands on the Southern High Plain are one of the sole sources of uh, the aquifer renewal, and those plow wetlands are not protected in the United States. And once the um, sedimentation fills in on, on plow wetlands, they, they lose function. Ecosystem service and support, which 
supports most of our migratory uh, waterfowl and sandhill cranes and, and other animals that migrate here. And we've lost a fair proportion of our Playa wetlands since the 1930s. And given the function of those, they're our main source of, of aquifer um, uh, replenishment and moving forward, um, conserving those by not um, plowing them up and or working towards um, um, restoration of those that have would be uh, um, an important conservation, uh, water conservation um, strategy moving forward in the future as well. Yeah, I think often the, the issue for um, you know, conservation, sustainability of, of groundwater, particularly in Texas, is not limited by ideas. It's limited by adoption and adaptation. And, um, you know, when you have a sort of a groundwater legal system that essentially has unlimited pumping, of course, in the High Plains, we do have groundwater districts that keep it from being quite that extreme. Um, but when you're attaching you know, groundwater to the surface estate with, with fairly limited liability. Um, I think whenever you come up with these very good, whether it be technology or, you know, we, we understand the science. So we're so far ahead of where we used to be, but how do you sort of get people to, to realize that there's something beneficial to, to adopting that? So it's more, at least from my perspective, it's more about the mechanism to get people to adopt things and not sort of have this race to the bottom idea of, well, if it's gonna run out, I'm gonna pump as much now, make as much money as I can now, because it's all gonna go away anyway. So it's a little bit of a dance to, to show people that adopting these things, they may be limiting themselves now, but, but it does have this sort of multi-generational payoff. Um, and then I think also the cost piece of some of these technologies, we have to figure out how we're going to assist um, farmers and landowners in being able to utilize these, particularly when there's new versions of them coming out all the time. So, you know, we have to think about our farmers in terms of large scale farmers that might have a lot of income that can adopt these things, but also the smaller scale farmers. You know, how do we get them as part of the conversation when they're working on um, such thin margins as it is. Yep. Maybe connect them through the impact that they might mm -hmm. have. I mean, talking about the playa, mm -hmm. most of the playa that are getting drier, we get to see more dust. Right. And the impact that would have, not just on us living here, but also on agriculture. What kind of impact it may have on how much money they will be able to produce. You know, are we getting to another dust ball? Well, it feels that way sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> we would have already had it had it not been for the adoption of, of uh, practicals, sustainable practices. Mm -hmm. uh, right. 2011 on my farm, I had 1.8 inches of rain in the growing season, and the only thing that that kept our country from completely blowing away is we knew how to plow, or we knew how to uh, farm no-till and we had CRP, so it was a combination mm -hmm. of best management practices. So what producers have learned to do is do more with less. All you have to do, let's talk about cotton, it's our predominant crop in this region. In 1980, if we were able to produce 50 pounds of lint on an inch of water, we were right at the top of the curve. Now we've got producers that are making 150, 160, 170 with less water, with less fertility. So again, it's best management practices. It's adopting technologies, both water delivery, uh, water management, uh, 
it, uh, the genetics have come so far so fast. And uh, so one of the things we do with TAWC is when we identify a new technology that has science behind it, not snake oil. If it has science behind it, we think that it might be practical for a grower. We try to put that technology in their hand and then help them, help them learn how to use it. Then let them share with other producers the positive or negative impact of that. If we can put an economic component behind a technology, all technologies cost money. And your comment about larger farmers, we're larger farmers because it's the economy of scale. Right. You know, uh, hadn't been that many years ago, I could go buy a new tractor for 40000 Now I add 200000 to that. So it's not that we wouldn't like to do it, is it's the economic component behind it. So when we do our outreach uh, programs, we try to tie a scientist to a producer, let the producer explain what kind of impact it's had, and then try to get a scientist to tell why it did what it did. So uh, again, I think um, all you have to do is, is look at uh, the kind of investment these guys are making, and actually, um, these larger guys are risking more. I know several producers that are barring one, two, three men to make a crop pump. Um, if they're lucky, maybe 5% margin. So all it takes is a couple of bumps in the road that they have no control over. Weather, price, uh, policy, all those things that impact them. And we're one of the few industries that um, we don't set prices, we take price. We take what's offered to us. We don't have the ability to negotiate. So, so a couple of things is uh, you did mention about the scale, right? So there's a couple of things that happens. One is the scale of operation. As a researcher, our scale of operations are much smaller when compared to that of the producers. So I think that doesn't actually give the producers the same level of confidence from the research that we do. So I think to actually beat that, but also uh, to try and help develop tools that they would be really interested, Working with uh, Rick, uh, we have our producers where we take the technology to the producers' fields. So all this technology is put onto the producers' plots, and then we work with the producers. We actually give them their records so that they can actually take all the data of their entire operations. We get the records back as a, as a function of the Texas Alliance for Water Conservation. We analyze that. We do have an economist in the team who is Donna, uh, Dr. Donna McAllister. She actually does all the economic and also the sustainability indices. And I think the biggest thing is the scale of operation that if you really think a technology works, trying to show them that at scale that it can be applied and the economic returns. Within the context of scale, spatial scale is important within this. We're talking about water conservation on the southern high plains, which is not a small area. Right. And thinking about the, the spatial extent of um, where we're talking about with the producers, if it's row crop versus, um, not versus, but um, maybe um, cattle operations or uh, a new economic enterprise that has made its uh, way on the high plains that um, within the past 10 years is, um, is hunting guide services, which benefit from, um, from our waterfowl and mule deer populations, pronghorn populations, sandhill crane populations, pheasants, quail, which um, are tied in to private landowners and 
um, how the land is taken care of. And within context of plow wetlands and um, even row crops and, and, and native rangelands, CRP is a great tool, native seeded CRP is a great tool for drought. Um, it, 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 it protects against uh, drought uh, effects over the long term. It, it promotes um, wildlife habitat for those species and it provides a secondary economic enterprise for these producers in those potentially bad years when they can lease those properties out for additional revenue uh, as maybe in small emergency funds or, or um, other uh, sources of revenue when those drought impacts happen. Um, and But the, the, the trouble with this is you're taking uh, 3.2 six million acres or so across the high plains and implementing it. I think you had a very good point of how do we get these these individuals to buy in across space and time. Yeah. And it's complicated and there, there, there are various arenas and, and, and avenues we can go, but uh, buy-in will be, the I think, the first step into some of these things. Yeah, and I, I think when it comes to buy-in, your, your point is well taken. I work with Dr. McAllister on, oh, on a project, oh, yeah, and so nice. we're talking about impediments to implementation, and we, you know, when we go out and speak with producers, one of the things that they mm -hmm. often ask is, well, where are you going to, you know, we said, like, well, if, if we gave you the data, what would make you adopt this, right? And and one of the things that comes back, which I think is fair, is, well, what did you test it on? Did you sort of test it on this nice little plot and it only had one type of soil um, and it grew perfectly because, you know, maybe it was watered differently or, or whatever. And so one of the things that, that comes back to us is, is you know, on this, certainly on the science side is, what do we need to sort of show to build trust? And so, I mean, ideally what would be great is if we had producers that were willing once there's been sort of a small case bed, but, but you know, they need all of that, that property. There's not a lot of people that have something that's available that want to risk their property to do this kind of more experimental thing. And so, you know, to your point of like, we're talking about a lot of acreage. It's easy to talk about the panhandle or this area is somehow small, but it's massive, right? We just, yeah. we're just used to scale in Texas, so it feels small to us, but it's, it's <laughs> about the size of a state. So if you think about, you know, different even soil chemistries, um, we need to make sure that whatever we're, whatever is being sort of uh, test bed or, you know, practiced in the lab, we are at least before we even start that really identifying what is it that the, that the producers are going to want to see in terms of uh, the type of soil we use or the type of environment or what we were growing um, to sort of build that that trust up because um, when you have something that you've done the same thing for for years at a time and it's it's worked even understanding that the water may be going away it's very high risk to say okay well I'll just shift over to this thing and maybe get nothing that year because of, of your experiment so um, I think the scale issue is a, is a big one. There is another idea that some people might call it crazy and I will not recommend it before <laughs> doing any research, but there is an atmospheric science, uh, a field called weather modification or more specifically cloud sitting, uh, which people have done in the past, but basically you add material to get more rain. But it may not work in Texas because the scale is different. It may not work with Texas because we need to understand the clouds that we have, the aerosol that form clouds. We might have more precipitation on one person area, but actually decrease the amount of precipitation on another one. So it's sort of as a crazy idea, but 
if someone will think about doing it, they should probably think very carefully and conduct the research ahead of time instead of just adding it. I've heard with the cloud seeding that the hydrological cycle gets messed up where they have tried. What do you think about that? It really depends. So there's two types of cloud seeding, one to add aerosol that will form cloud droplets and another one that will form ice crystals. Um, for the hygroscopic, these are the one for uh, droplets, there has been some success in very specific places. But for the one that you add, probably, and this would be similar to what we would have here, more aerosol to form ice crystals, it hasn't been so successful and there has been issues and there have been law cases in different places and that they one covenant in one area sued the neighbor area because they took their water. So it could, I would not recommend doing it without understanding better what type of clouds you have, what kind of aerosol you have, run some model to understand the impact that that might have. You might have short duration of precipitation that might harm your crop rather than, you know, longer duration. So, but it's sort of a crazy idea that someone might suggest as an option to get more water in, here in Texas. It's a very emotional topic when you get in the country. Yeah. I know, very, I know. Very, yeah, I think um, I grew up, my grandfather was a farmer south of here. So whenever there was rain clouds, you know, we all had to go outside and he was constantly saying what the barometric pressure was and whether it was dropping. So I feel like I had no choice really in what I went into in my life. I thought I had a choice, but ultimately I think it was, you know, epigenetics or something, something like that. But I mean, one thing, I'm not against cloud seeding, but, but what I would say is I often hear people making um, suggestions that I sort of talk about as silver bullet suggestions, right? Like, let's just ship water over here and, um, you know, let's do desal, let's do clouds. And, it, you know, whenever we try to mess with nature, it almost always slaps us back in the, in the face. And even if we're doing something that isn't sort of a direct challenge to how nature functions, you know, when you really start to think about the energy required to move water and the price and the amount of eminent domain and that it would take to be moving pipelines, it really, to me, brings to mind that maybe the silver bullet isn't going to be where we should start. And when I look at this area, one of the things I find so interesting is the co-location of this kind of growing municipality that doesn't focus as much on water publicly as, um, you know, like a San Antonio or an Austin where there's a little bit more of a relationship between the municipal water provider and the customer. And then right outside that, using the exact same water, are farmers that are, you know, putting in very fancy technology, working on tiny margins. And so, you know, what I'd love to see is, is a lot more collaboration between the city because we all we both need each other. Um, and historically in Texas, the municipal versus, um, you know, the urban versus rural has been this, I think, a, sort of a, a fake, you know, a fake conflict because without one, none of us are going to be here, right? The economy of Lubbock, yes, Texas Tech is big, but we still need uh, that farm economy. So, you know, when I think about how are we going to get people to adopt these very expensive technologies? I mean, what I'd like to see is, you know, a city of Lubbock engaging, figuring out how much water do we have as a whole? 
Um, and, you know, maybe the city of Lubbock starts to help farmers, you know, they create a fund that helps farmers get these type of, uh, you know, conservation programs and the equipment that they need, because ultimately the city of Lubbock um, would benefit if farmers use less water. So I think we, one of the biggest challenges, and, and I don't think it's unique to Texas, but we certainly have it up here, is this, you know, we keep putting these fake boundaries around these users and, and the environment, right? The environment is not extra. We need the environment and ecosystems to function as well. Um, so it's harder, right? It's harder to figure out how to do that because we all want to work inside our, our bubbles. But I don't think that any of us are going to be able to stay here um, unless, unless we figure that out. I agree with all that. I, you know, I think maybe one thing we ought to think about is how are these guys surviving? Mm. And uh, so they're, they're doing their own research. Mm -hmm. And I think you will see over time, as the water declines, then it becomes much more expensive to, to get yeah. to the surface. So you don't have to go very far from Lubbock and you'll see areas where there's higher value crops. Yeah. Fewer acres are irrigated. And most people believe that all agriculture, even in this region, is irrigated. It's not. No. 40% of the cotton in this region is all that gets supplemental irrigation. Mm -hmm. And there's very, very few farms that have the ability to furnish all the water a crop needs in a growing season. We proved that in 2011. Mm -hmm. We proved it again last year when we had such massive abandonment of, of cotton. So, <clears throat> you know, again, one of the other things that I think we might consider is if you look at average rainfall in Lubbock, Texas, there's not a normal. Uh, there's nothing normal about weather in <laughs> Lubbock, Texas, but you look at the average is about 18 inches, but <clears throat> we're blessed in that about 10 of those inches come from the 1st of April to the end of August. So they come at a time for a summer crop. But then if you actually consider how much we're been able to, to capture, store, and then use, it's, you, you get all kinds of numbers and it all depends on on that particular rainfall event, but I think a very optimistic number would be 40 to 50 percent. So if we can figure out a way to capture one additional inch of rainfall on every acre, figure the gallons, yeah. that has an impact. And it's something we don't have to pay for an infrastructure. We don't have to see the cloud. We don't have to buy technology. All we got to do is figure out a better way to, to farm. And I think our growers are already doing that, but I think we can complement that. Uh, help them with, with rotational crops that can bring benefit not only for soil and water, but economically. And I think those crops are already here. We just need to put the, the uh, research behind it to document those numbers. Mm -hmm. You give a farmer the right kind of data that he can trust, uh, if it's profitable to him, when we make good crops, we're not very good about keeping it. We're going to go buy something. We're going to get a new tractor or we're going to get a new toy. We're going to get something, you know. So it's not that that you can't uh, affect adoption. Uh, it's just that you got to give them the right information. And it comes down to dollars and cents. We all want to be good stewards. But our primary concern is how are we going to educate our kids? How are we going to pay the operating note at the end of the year? All of that is ahead, even though we do want to be good stewards. But, but if we're a good steward and we can't stay in business, we haven't 
Yeah, I hear that. We haven't accomplished a thing. So. You said something really, really that hits the, the point home is the, the high plains, the mean means nothing. The average here is not, is irrelevant to these conversations. And we don't have the benefit of, you know, 75 inches of rainfall a year like the coastal systems or knowing that we're in a desert, a real desert, um, not a semi-arid area where there's going to be uh, little to no precipitation. And you're, you're right, 2011, you know, you know some some individuals saw less than uh, a half an inch of rain the entire year and you know across a 30-year data set on the high plains you can see that that would be one extreme the other extreme would be 55 to, to 60 inches of rainfall and the 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 principal component within that conversation and every single weather variable is it varies every single year it's going it's very rare when every single one or anything hits the mean how do you plan for a crop yield in the winter, not knowing what's coming in the next spring. We can make general predictions and, you know, and all that, but um, what, we're, what we're dealing with is um, uh, the exact most difficult situation in terms of space and time and variation in, in our weather patterns on an annual basis that makes it just so complicated. And you, you drove the point home is how do we teach our kids and how do we educate um, knowing that we do live in the exact location where variation is the normal, not the the exception. Yeah. Climate change might mess up your entire calculation. It's all, yeah, it's, gonna, well, I think it's just it's increasing the extremes, right? Exactly. I mean, that's what we're seeing statewide yeah. is that now it's, I mean, I feel like Lubbock has always had sort of a weird pendulum, but now it's like the rest of the world is understanding what it's like to say, is this going to be a, a, you know, a flood year or, you know, a completely dry year? And then you know, on top of it, when it rains is so critical. I mean, you know, when you live here year round, you really start to wonder how this ever became a farming region. Like, it's such a, it's such a, you know, needle to thread that, and then everything can go perfect. And then one run, you know, uh, weather event or hailstorm, and it's just over, you know, so you can, you can get right to the edge of harvest. And then, you know, it's just kind of miraculous that it ever works. That's right. So one of the nice thing that you spoke about if the producer actually sees it yeah. then he's going to adopt it right and I think it is our ability and I think we need to test our challenge ourselves to distill the information the vast amount of information that we yeah. get in a way that the producers can actually understand right and I think that's been a big challenge that happens we do have a lots of data we do lots of statistical analysis that's all fine right at the end of the day can you distill it down yeah. for him to understand just three things this is what you're going to do, this is what you apply, this is what you're going to get generally, right? And I think, again, coming back to your point of about the urban and the ag side of things, so we are working with TAWAA guys mm -hmm. who actually run the Texas water, which is primarily for the urban and the municipality. Yeah. So we realize that that dialogue between the ag and the municipality is not happening. So for the first time, Texas Tech is collaborating with TAWAA, and we are actually coming with the Ag Water Sustainability mm -hmm. Summit here in Lubbock. So basically, we are trying to get people from both these domains to try and talk and also have research-based discussions along the same lines. And we thought that that's an area that we really need to start talking. And so I think we are putting our research and TTU up there in terms of yeah, the sort of collaboration. So, Yeah, no, that's really good to hear. I mean, I, I would say that because it's sort of this shared water and we yeah. have this, I'm going to call it weird 
um, legal system around groundwater. We're really the only state that's like this. So, and that's that's there. There's just nothing. So we're, we have to always just kind of work with that in the room. And so it does give us, I think, the opportunity for some markets, some trading. I mean, we see down in central Texas where the Edwards Aquifer has a cap. City of San Antonio might pay farmers for drier options. So we're paying them not to grow so that you know, I mean, to me, it's like a game of musical chairs. There's just only so many chairs. So um, if you can get out of the line, it means that someone else is guaranteed a chair. And so in some of the other areas of Texas where there isn't yet kind of a pumping cap, we haven't moved into that. But but I think in these areas where you have a couple of cities that are depending on the exact same water as, as the farmers, if you don't have that conversation, you know, you're never going to be able to hit your, your budget. Um, and so... And that means, you know, we have a lot of people moving to Lubbock. It means educating them about where they live and what is the water and what is the water situation. And, you know, should we be watering the lawns when there's 30 mile an hour winds and all these things <laughs> that, that, you know, <laughs> people might not want to talk about, but that give me, make my eyes switch when I'm driving around town. Yeah. So I think, you know, to, to talk about ag is certainly ag has a huge piece, but they are one piece of of our water community. And I, you know, I think there's a lot of other sectors that could step up and do their part as well. But there's definitely an education on company. Yeah. Where I grew up, uh, I grew up in Israel, water is right. an issue. So as a child, we learn save water, you know, there's a slower amount of water that go into the toilet. And coming here was like, whoa, so much water. <laughs> so sure, we can do small things, but if we educate mainly the young children, mm -hmm. they can help us educate our the parents, and we sure. can learn to practice and use less water yeah. for different things. I agree, and like how we build houses, and I mean, now I'm waiting to things that really are gonna get me in trouble, but you know, the, how all these new developments are coming in, do they, you know, our sprinkler systems and, and turf grass in the front yard in a place where it's really gonna be naturally dormant a good bit of the time, is that the highest and best mm -hmm. use of water? I mean, you know, I grew up in, a, in San Antonio, so water was a big issue when I was growing up, um, and so, so, you know, this idea that not everybody is necessarily going to get all the water they want for all the purposes. As a community, we really need to decide what is a, the best use of our water, especially treated drinking water quality water, you know, which we take for granted around here. But if you've traveled at all, obviously that's not the case in many places. We've already seen... Uh, shift in the time of where hurricane occur and the fact that we just have stronger one the tornado alley is shifting in terms of moving eastward compared to what it was which is great for texas but you know horrible for for other places um we starting to see even shift in the time of occurrence of dust uh, and their impact and their strength that they'll they'll have. So I don't think it's the end of it. I think we're just now starting to understand some of these impact and some of these changes. Unfortunately, when we talk about climate, we talk about 20 to 30 year average. So we're, we're just at the beginning of that 20 to 30 year in some of the meteorological and atmospheric processes. So we can't really tell where, where, it's, where we're gonna end. But we know it's not gonna be great, unfortunately. <laughs> it's not going well so far. It's not, yeah, it's not we, going we, well. We see changes to phenology of, of, of plow wetlands and salinas having uh, water 
um, based on precipitation patterns. You know, you're absolutely right. Uh, most of our rainfall is in that in that summertime. We also have another kind of a peak um, towards October as well. Uh, it's not as important as our, our as much as the the, the June and, and July uh, rainfall events, but what we're seeing in, in context of water availability on on for uh, wildlife habitat, native rangelands, playa wetlands, salinas is a change in, in um, amounts and when it is occurring and uh, desertification as a result of that. In fact, I was in Cochrane County this uh, this weekend uh, looking. Um, at some endangered habitat, uh, some habitat for the endangered lesser prairie chicken, where we projected that hey, in 2050 this would be kind of go from a semi-arid rangeland to a desert with sand dunes, and I, I was hoping I would be wrong, but we're already seeing where the the sand dunes are completely open. They have no vegetation left, even though the shinery oak and the the the, the other uh, plant species come, that evolved there have these deep complex root systems that allow them to penetrate that sandy soil and get water. And we have not documented open sand dunes in Texas. In New Mexico, we have in the same ecosystem because of the uh, the, the latitude. But in Texas, since they, you know we we colonized, in ten years there are now open dune systems and complete vegetation, and it's raising the the sand, causes increased dust storms and eradication of habitat, and then and, and forage for cattle. And we're we're seeing some pretty drastic changes already in context of that. And then if you take saline lakes and the, the salinas, um, there's approximately 50 or so on the high plains, three have spring function left. Uh, those are thankfully, or most of those are, of the three are in public trust, but we've lost uh, freshwater spring function in those, the, those systems, which are now our saline systems, but they're, they're an important component to, to the rangelands here. And it, it, it's just been within the past 10 years. So when you say this, this is fantastic. Um, so the when is an absolutely important thing when you come to the act. So averages doesn't mean anything at the end of the day, right? So if you get a five or six inches somewhere in Jan and February, you don't have any water at all for the growing season, mm -hmm. then it is obvious that our producers are just going to pump whatever they possibly can to yeah. keep it going because they need to make their ends meet at the end yeah. of the day, right? So uh, some, uh, something that I'm actually working with one of the precision agriculture professor in plant and soil sciences, um, uh, Dr. Wenjuan, um, is we are actually trying to get satellite images are a fantastic sort of an opportunity that provides, right? So we're trying to go back 40 years from now to try and get whatever potential satellite images are out there. And we do have quite a lot of the, data that is available in NAS. Uh, so what we're trying to do is what is the shifts that has happened in terms of land use pattern over the last 40 years, depending upon the rainfall, depending upon the timing of the rainfall and the amount of the rainfall, right? So we're trying to learn over the past 40 years how we have changed as a community on type of the farming systems, how we have evolved, right? And then we are trying to use the future 40, 50 years of the medium and the long term to try and predict what changes could happen in the case of the land use, land, land use uh, pattern. So that's yeah. that's something if you think that, yeah, are we on the right line of oh, uh, sort you, of you're absolutely, Actually, we just we just published a paper in remote sensing doing that for sand scenery ecosystems. And I, I was working with a colleague in natural resources management, Dr. Carlos Portillo, who is right. uh, GIS. Um, um, he and his team, um, collected aerial imagery dating back to as available. Yep. And the, the, it, the area we were at in the San Shinrio ecoregion, it's not plowed or tilled, it's the, it's the delta of the Permian Sea. So it's, it's sand. 
and there's limited oil and gas, limited production. It's mostly rangelands for um, cattle production. And our, our goal was to assess what have been the, the vegetation composition and structure changes since the first available uh, photo until um, 2018. Um, plethora of data sets from across, that's Dr. Portillo's forte, but we, we estimated uh, percent change from 1880 to now, and, and, and just because of changes in weather and then and, and, and vegetation composition alone, we've, we've lost about 80% of those habitats, and most of it was between 1930 and, and 1980. Um, and that's not because of land conversion or any other. It was just straight up uh, environmental changes. Changes, yes, yes. You know, from an irrigation standpoint, I'll I'll help you. I'll get in trouble too. Okay, good. Uh, come to the come to my side of the room. Yeah. And, I'm and, always in and, trouble. And this is this is your area of expertise. But when we look at uh, government policy, yeah, an irrigated producer is if he's gonna ensure that crop is an irrigated crop, he has to irrigate it. Mm -hmm. yeah. And we saw instances in 2011, it wasn't as bad in 2022 because the, the trigger price was high enough that they could cut that water off mm -hmm. and still be able to survive. Yeah. So we need a method where some rational person can say, okay, that's enough. Mm -hmm. Even if we get rainfall after this point, the crop is damaged mm -hmm. to the extent yeah. it's not going to work. We don't have that with the insurance component coming from D.C. So if you can fix that. I'm on it. Be, that'd be okay. <laughs> I, could, I could not agree more. I mean, this idea of unintended consequences is yeah. something that, I mean, we have all the science. We understand when a harvest has to sort of have gotten its water and be set. So this idea that in order to, you know, not go under and get your insurance payments, which you paid for, by the way, and That's your right. premiums, and they're not small because I just wrote the check, that, you know, yeah. that we're going to waste water in order to do that. I mean, we, we have sections that are that are kind of working against each other and and i think that's just such a great example there are others but that's one that just is crazy making for me yeah that would be that would be a big help yeah. these guys and the thing about it is it's almost a judgment call with each one of the adjusters that goes out right so if you've got a guy that that has some experience you're probably going to be treated pretty good yeah the next guy that may not have had that type of background but he's only got a book to read and if it's not if you, can't, if you can't uh, yep. dot all the I's, well, you know, we're not going to cover you. So we should be positive about the, uh, the successful communication and outreach efforts from our um, state and federal and non-governmental organizations for um, wetland conservation, wildlife conservation, as well as implementation and the importance of native seeded CRP in this ecoregion. Um, and, and, and the latter CRP, not from a way of uh, converting land or taking it out of the landowner's hand, but as a way to viably protect wildlife populations, protect the, the land from soil erosion during those uh, extreme drought years, and, and be a, a source of emergency revenue, like emergency hang, because um, CRP is the, the, the one that's lagging a bit, but in, in context of um, migratory uh, birds, which are protected under federal policy, uh, we have seen dramatic increases in both waterfowl and sandhill crane numbers since the 1950s through habitat protections, and they're migratory, so even though they, they migrate here to winter, 
we have uh, been successful at protecting those those habitats to the extent of those populations are expanding because they have to have resources to get back and breed. And um, approximately 80% of the mid-continent uh, population of sandhill cranes overwinters on in, in the, on the high plains. Waterfowl are becoming more abundant, abundant on the high plains because of the central flyway and water availability. And um, CRP is, and the Farm Bill is an important piece of this puzzle. It's the one that's lagging behind in terms of positive news, but we're making great strides in communicating that to our producers as a positive um, mechanism, um, not as a, a way to um, um, promote taking land and putting it back in native prairie. It, 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 it's, those two things are not mutually exclusive. They work together, and there's been a tremendous amount of success in moving that forward. Yeah, so in terms of, if you look at technology itself, we have come a long way. So that actually is one side of the story where it's not just the sensor technology, even if you look at the crop technology in terms of different molecular approaches, different transgenic approaches, you do have a ton of new technology that is coming out that is going to be useful as you go towards the future, right? So one thing that in terms of the management side of things that we got to be really hopeful is, well, over the years we have lived, we'll continue to live into the future as well. It's just trying to find the right management approaches going forward. And if you look at, a, this is cotton country, we can still continue to be a cotton country just that by introducing crops such as millets or maybe like sorghum, which are actually less water consuming, but having them in a rotation can actually save you that one year of less amount of the water. So that's something that we are extensively working as uh, Texas Tech and also with the United Sorghum Checkoff Program here uh, in town. And the other thing that we haven't talked, spoken a lot about is on the animal side of things, on the livestock, where a surprise to see that two thirds of the economy of ours is primarily comes from livestock, not from crops, right? But then if you talk to the animal scientists, and I've talked to a couple of them, and nearly 95% of the water used in the animal industry actually comes from the water that goes to produce the feed for them. So finding alternative solutions for those silages, for what we, I was just looking up and we are writing a proposal where you have 2,500 feed loss just in these four regions in the same, right? So 47% of the US meat actually comes with uh, Western New Mexico, West Kansas, Oklahoma, and Panhandle, and also the Texas High Plains, right? So I think we have a real big opportunity there as well, and so we are trying to focus on looking at newer genetics for sorghum as well as millet forages going forward, just so that you have different alternatives for corn, but at the same time also improving the dot tolerance for corn, because then you don't want to completely take a side for a crop. All we want to try and do is try and provide a good balanced and alternative options for our producers just so that we continue to sustain, have a climate smart sort of forage livestock systems going forward and give the options to the producers as well. So I think a lot of this is in the pipeline right now and hopefully in the next four or five years you'll start to see some of this happening on the producers' plots. Um, so mine's going to sound a lot fluffier than yours, so sorry. Um, I mean, I am totally excited about the, the amount of science that's, that's coming out and, and our understanding of systems is, is completely critical. But, you know, I'll be honest, when I'm feeling sort of glum about how things are going, um, I sort of like to look back historically, and you, you sort of touched on this. I mean, 
this area, maybe more than any other, at least in Texas, in my mind, has always been defined by water and our relationship to the land. So, you know, when you think back on the on the Dust Bowl and what we didn't understand and what we created, like, yeah, there was a drought, but the Dust Bowl was not created by drought. It was created by land management techniques. And there is a resilient group of people that live in this, you know, I'm happy to be a, a descendant of a few of them, but, you know, these are tough people and um, they, sometimes get a, a bad rap, I think, but they have adjusted as they've, as they've learned. Um, and it's time for another major adjustment, I'm afraid. I mean, I think these other outside forces, I mean, they're not really outside, I guess they're yeah. internal, but the big ones, right? Like the meta, the meta forces that are happening, um, you know, we might not be able to predict exactly when it's gonna rain, but if we know or how much it's gonna rain or, you know, but if we can create systems that have a very quick reactivity. I mean, the reality is for some of these climate change events, we're gonna have to be have a system ready for when we have one of those big rain events so that then we can prepare ourselves for when we don't. That's the truth of it. Um, and I have no doubt that the people of this area, particularly the farming community, will you know, step up to the plate yet again as we sort of learn and understand that. I mean, they have to, right? That this is their families, this is their income. They, the idea that farmers don't have a vested interest in, in this being sorted out is, is just not accurate. So um, I think some of the pressure is actually gonna be on the folks that don't have a relationship to the land to forge those relationships and sort of partnerships in that in that area. So I have to believe if they made it through the Dust Bowl, we can we can absolutely make it through the through this one. Um, and you know, to your point, well, it's not it's not an it's not an if it's a what right. It's not an if it's going to happen. It's what what is that actually you know going to look like? So I just have to kind of throw my faith in that sometimes and. And hope, and you know, some of these older farming older farming practices that are new again, the the no-till, the rotation crops. I mean, there are things now that we may be borrowing from small plot Africa farmers because they, you know, it, it now makes more sense here, and we're just going to figure out what that is. Well, along those same lines, uh, this will surprise some of you, but I, I'm actually an old timer <laughs> by definition. Um, and so if you want to be optimistic, one of the examples that I can give you not, not too long ago, I listened to a panel of young guys, 30, 35. You put that same panel together of guys my age, we'll tell you how it used to be, yeah. which doesn't really make any difference other than we should learn from that. Yeah. These guys are solving their problems today. They didn't live through the abundance of water that I did mm -hmm. and watched it go away. The, the farm my dad moved to in 1949 was 472 acres and uh, it had almost two, 2,500 gallons a minute based on, on what we think. That same farm today uh, has livestock water. Mm -hmm. But as far as, as the issues that we have and the opportunity that we have at Texas Tech is we can help these young people be prepared mm -hmm. the best that we can. And, so that's about as good an opportunity as, as you could hand anybody. And um, over time, I have tried to uh, not bore people with the way things used to be, but to, to try to learn from these young guys because they're fighting it and they're optimistic and they're going to make it work. Some of them will, some of them won't. That's just how, 
It's how the ball bounces. But uh, uh, tech is in such a unique place. I mean, we're living in our own laboratory. Yeah. We can go out and look at good water, and we can go and look at where they're put, taking pivots down. Mm. So what happened? What's the difference here? Yeah. You know, and can we help this guy that maybe just thinks, man, maybe I can irrigate one more year. Can we give him enough information to help him transition to a rain-fed farming opportunity? Yep, maybe we can. Uh, but to me, that's, that's the opportunities and really the responsibility that we have. Mm -hmm. and, and I think Tech's doing a good job. So the one thing that I'm thankful for is the fact that, you know, being here and being among great scientists, um, the opportunity that we have here in tech, not just doing great science related to Lubbock, related to Texas, is also the fact that we care. We care about our community. We care about this area. So obviously we're trying to do the best as we can in terms of research and in terms of outreach um, as scientists, but also we have the feedback and, and importance and care from the community, from the farmer. We're not just you know trying to bring something to them. We're communicating with them. We hear the people. We want to understand how can we make their life and our life better because we all live here, and I'm hoping that we'll stay here for a long time. Um, but that's really one of the things I'm, I'm thankful as, as being here as a scientist at Texas Tech and doing the research that I do. To see more episodes of Foundations, you can go to our YouTube channel. Just search Texas Tech University on YouTube.